Hey, it's Flaves, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Our guest today is Max Boykoff from the University of Colorado. And with today's episode, we are launching a new series about effective and creative communication around climate change. In his new book, Creative Climate Communications, Productive Pathways for Science, Policy, and Society, Max explores how we can use effective storytelling to pivot away from a place of winning arguments, naming and shaming, and gotcha moments to instead find common ground and become creative messengers and reach out to new audiences with different points of view, which is the only way we'll be able to create the collective action that we need to effectively address climate change. Hi, Max. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. Glad to be on the show. Given that it's an election year, I want to dig into how we can find common ground and move past climate change being a red versus blue or liberal versus conservative stalemate in the U.S. But before that, it seems that this relationship of climate advocacy or climate skepticism to one's political affiliation is unique to the United States. Why is that? Polarization around climate change is particularly an acute challenge in the United States. That's true. It hasn't actually been shown to be exclusively in the United States. There are other countries that some folks have studied, such as Australia, some discussions in the UK, for instance, where there has been contrarianism that's cropped up. Reasons why, in short, can be part of cultural political histories. Say, for example, in the United States, some of the work that that I've done with others has traced some of this back to this kind of Western expansionist, pro-privatization, get the government out of my life kind of mindset. And uh, some of it also is just tied to histories and ties to carbon-based industry. So again, in the United States case, we are in some ways in the belly of the beast where carbon-based industry and its ties to federal decision-making and policy action or inaction is um, as intense as anywhere. But we can see this also in Australia and some of the things that um, have been stirred up through those terrible bushfires that have been taking place over the last few months. And many of the disagreements around climate change are grounded in what has become a distrust in science and scientists. As a science educator, how can cultivating an interest in science in young people help increase trust in science and strengthen its use to inform climate policy? That's a great question. You know, in the book that I've recently written, I I get after a consideration of trust right away because trust undergirds so much of efforts around communication. If you're not authentically engaging with people, if you're not taking the time to listen and taking the time to have a discussion rather than just talk at somebody, then you can build up relationships of trust. So that is about meeting people where they are. It is about finding common ground. If your point is to basically prove to somebody that you're right and they're wrong, that you're smart and they're dumb, well, then you take a certain approach. But if you want to build relations of trust to be able to address this collective action challenge of intersectional climate change, then you need to think carefully about how to establish those relationships. You talk about young people. I teach here at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I'm really struck by young folks that I'm now working with in the classroom and that they've grown up in a world where this has been on the agenda since they've really become engaged with these kinds of issues. For those of us who are a little bit older, I'm a little bit older, I can think about when this came onto the scene in the late 1980s. But young people in particular have been growing up with the realities of this, not just as some distant threat, but here and now, and it affects not just their present tense, but also their futures going forward. And so to try to retrieve the situation from polarization, from naming and shaming, from villainizing certain members of the public citizenry 
to think about how to find that common ground through relationships of trust is particularly important for young people now. And you point out in your book that many scientists stop at research and publication and keep their work locked in a peer review vault. What can and should scientists do to become better partners and more effectively inform and engage people who don't have a strong scientific background? Well, fundamentally, the ways in which in the past or some of the vestiges of the past that crop up now, some of those ways in which we've thought about communication and engagement as an extension of our responsibilities within academic life and climate sciences, climate research. When we thought about that as an extension, that's really a 20th century model of communication. Some people have really talked about this as dumbing it down for the general public. The 21st century model of communication, which I hope my book is helping foster, catalyze, help along, is to think about how communication is a fabric of our responsibilities in the 21st century, that it is part of the work that we do. Far too often, some of the research that's done, researchers think that it will speak for itself. If it is worthy, if it is making a contribution, it'll get out there and it'll be seen or heard by the right people. But it doesn't happen that way. Our lives are very busy. The media communications channels are packed full. And so we need to think carefully about how we are not just producing research and insights through our research, but then also how we can meet folks impacted by that research, how we can engage with different stakeholders that may take an interest and may find that useful for the kinds of efforts that they're making. And moving from science to business, the recent emergence of abundant, cheap, clean energy gives us an opportunity to build a stronger and more resilient resource and energy economy. How can we use this opportunity to engage people who are primarily motivated by economics and still view climate change through a zero-sum lens or environmental stewardship hurts business? Yes. Well, one of the reasons that I have titled the book as it is with climate in parentheses is because of what may be perceived as a zero-sum game or what can be perceived as a as a back and forth on climate change can be approached in a much different and more effective way if you don't explicitly invoke climate or climate change right out of the gates. And so that's not at all to suggest that we ought to shy away from the issue. Rather, it means that communications must be creative in order to effectively find this common ground. And so by leading with climate change, some of the approaches that I've observed have been tone deaf about what might be effective in reaching certain audiences in certain contexts. So there's times and places to effectively make climate communications explicit, but there's also other times to embed climate communications within implicitly in other ways of discussing it. So by that, I mean, you can talk about, say, future proofing is one way that I've talked about in the book that climate change has been approached implicitly in places like Texas with oil and gas considerations. You can have a conversation about stewardship and responsibility as resonant terms. You can talk about infrastructure programs and then get at some of the same issues that talking about the centerpiece of decarbonization, reducing the carbon-based energy content in our energy generation and energy use is still very important. And you talk about some of the messaging being tone deaf. A lot of it is based in fear, and that can cause people to feel helpless and powerless. How can we communicate the urgency of the challenge without creating paralysis because the situation is seen as hopeless? One of the um, key findings that I come away with in this book, after having scoured, uh, had the opportunity really to go through a lot of social sciences and humanities scholarship over uh, the last decade or so, 
is that fear helps to raise awareness. Fear is one way with gloom and doom and despair to catch people out of their comfort zones and get their attention. However, social sciences and humanities scholarship has also shown that you can paralyze people in that way. You can alienate them from actually engaging in what could be seen as a set of solutions to address it, to alleviate the negative impact. So what a lot of social sciences research and humanities scholarship has shown is that pairing those together in very careful and creative ways is critically important. So pairing awareness raising with opportunities for people to take action. So in that way, it provides some semblance of hope, provides some semblance of people feeling like there's something they can do about it, provides the notion that they have agency in this. And so rather than just sitting in the woe is me space that doesn't actually do a whole lot of work for us at the end of the day, we can get together and think about, yes, this is a tremendous challenge that we face, but there are many opportunities that are associated with it. And so that is one of the key takeaways from the work that I've done in the book, which basically is pulling together a lot of that research that says that fear alone won't do it. It's pairing it with these places of possibility, of hope, of plugging in to take action. You reference Auden Schendler, Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Mountain in your book. And Auden was on Climate Changers last season. And he talked about making climate change a daily practice like yoga or the martial arts. Along those lines, how can we make communication around climate change a practice that is present and meaningful in our everyday lives? I totally agree with that. Making it part of our everyday habits. There's a lot of uh, research that's been shown that if you just shrink the change, if you don't think about it as one tremendous global challenge, you shrink it into everyday chunks that you can do something about. It can be a way that you start to routinize the engagements that we need to have. That's not to say that we want to just encase this in individual engagement. One of the maybe pitfalls associated with climate change is that people often think that if they just control what they do individually, then things will scale up on their own. Actually, what we need to do is engage directly in these collective challenges. So we engage in pressures for policy action. We engage in some of the community challenges around a changing climate in order to meet the scale of these challenges. So we don't just sit in that individualized space and then at times take up kind of a greener than thou attitude, naming and shaming other people who aren't doing quite as much as maybe we are doing. Being an election year, we have a unique opportunity to create significant, meaningful, long-lasting change through the election. But it's going to take a strong grassroots effort to counter the misinformation and skepticism that's funded by the likes of ExxonMobil and the Koch brothers and other carbon-based players. On top of that, these organizations have access to the halls of Congress, representatives with positions of power at all levels of government, and the ear of the president, again, making this election a critical moment for the fight against climate change. With this in mind, what can we do to best equip activists, especially young activists who will be future leaders and decision makers, to construct their own stories that find common ground and engage new audiences? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. I mean, that cuts to the heart of a lot of these challenges. Here in the United States, you're absolutely right. This is one of the most consequential elections that we've faced as a nation, certainly that I can imagine we've faced in my lifetime. In the book, I actually talk about five rules of the road, five features of a roadmap that help us engage in those ways a bit more effectively. You know, as I walk through them, they provide lots of different entry points for people to get involved as individuals, as communities, as particular activist groups. You mentioned activism, particular, you know, organizations, even businesses. And so through those efforts, 
we can really more effectively meet people where they are. This isn't just simply a left-right set of challenges, that this is grounded in a collective action set of problems at the human environment interface. And so we need to find common ground across uh, the political spectrum in order to be able to address this effectively. Well, Max, thank you for the work that you do as a researcher, educator, and activist to help diverse audiences find common ground needed for collective action on climate change. And thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers. Hey, thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure. Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.